0: You are listening to We Rise on 89.3 FM KPFB in Berkeley or Occupied Huchin. I'm your host Kat Petru and today I am thrilled to share with you a conversation with the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective's Mia Mingus. This conversation was recorded back in July of this year and it could not be a more perfect time to share it with you all today. In this conversation about transformative justice and healing, Mia poses the questions, what is accountability? What is justice? How can our movements be survivor-centered? What, in fact, is community? In our dialogue, we explore what transformative justice is, how we can all apply it to our own lives, and what exactly are these sci-fi-sounding pods? To share with you a little bit about Mia, she is a writer, educator, and community organizer for disability justice and transformative justice. She is a queer, physically disabled Korean woman, transracial and transnational adoptee from the Caribbean. She works for community, interdependency, and home for all of us, not just some of us, and longs for a world where disabled children can live free of violence with dignity and love. As her work for liberation evolves and deepens, her roots remain firmly planted in ending sexual violence. So we're going to start by talking about the collective. I want to introduce listeners to the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective. So what exactly is it?
1: So the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, or the BATJC, we're a small local group uh, located here in the Bay Area of... Community members, individuals, we're not a nonprofit, so we all just do this uh, because it's part of our life's work. And um, we work to build and sustain transformative justice responses to child sexual abuse specifically. And then because child sexual abuse is usually bound up with lots of different types of violence, we end up working on all kinds of violence. But pretty much it's mostly intimate and sexual violence that we work on.
0: Okay, so there's a little bit to unpack there in order for people uh, who might not be familiar with the work to understand it. So this work is so important and I personally am new to transformative justice and I imagine some of our listeners are as well. So what is transformative justice? So transformative justice, at the crux of it, at its most kind of bare bones, if
1: we were just talking to you know anyone on the street, I usually say it is a way of responding to violence, harm and or abuse that doesn't create more violence, harm, and or abuse. And so we understand the state, for example, in state-sanctioned violence, as creating more harm and violence and abuse, and, and actually being outright abusive. And so transformative justice is in two parts. So one, it's a way of responding to violence, harm, and abuse in your communities that doesn't involve the state. So it doesn't involve police, prisons, the criminal legal system, ICE, foster care system, etc. cetera. And it also doesn't reinforce any kind of oppressive societal norms. So we're not talking about reinforcing harmful gender norms or vigilantism either. You know, we're not talking about people just going and beating up somebody with a baseball bat or anything like that. So that's the first part, is the resistance part of what we don't want. But then I think the second part of transformative justice that is really important, and I would say even more important, is that it's also actively working to build and cultivate the very things that we know prevent future violence. So things like accountability, safety, healing, connection, all of that, trust. And those two pieces together, I feel like, are what transformative justice is. So it's both resisting against the world that we don't want, i.e. not using the state, but it's also actively building the world that we do want. So actively cultivating all of the things that we know prevent violence. And in doing that, I feel like it's important to say that transformative justice, a lot of times when people think of transformative justice, they think, oh, that's responding to violence without calling the cops or without you know, bringing in the criminal legal system. And yes, that's true, but Just not calling the cops is not necessarily transformative or revolutionary. And so I really try to stress to people that it's a both and, and that it's not enough just to not call the cops because as we know, and as so many survivors know, our communities can be just as challenging and violent and traumatic as the state can be. And in many ways, our communities have also internalized the state in a lot of ways. And our communities are not perfect. And our communities don't always know what to do when violence and harm and abuse are happening. Um, and oftentimes, many survivors talk about that even though they you know, were treated horrifically by the state, that it was actually the way they were treated by their communities that ended
0: up hurting them the most and the deepest. So that makes me wonder a lot about what kind of interventions you and the BATJC create within communities. But maybe before jumping to that, I was curious. I'm sure some folks have heard of restorative justice. And I would love for you to provide a distinction between restorative justice and transformative justice.
2: Yeah.
1: There's a lot of differences and a lot of similarities. And I think as time continues to progress, you know the differences and distinctions 10 years ago, for example, are some are the same, but I think some are shifting um, now as we're looking at both of them. So kind of just bare bones... A lot of what restorative justice was oriented towards was this idea of restoring, right? That we want to restore the relationships to what they were before the harm occurred. Or we want to restore some type of community feeling, you know, some sense of communal justice or what have you. Um, And a lot of transformative justice uh, organizers would question and say, what are we restoring to? and that we don't actually want to restore the relationships to what they were before the harm occurred because those relationships were part of the conditions that allowed for the harm to occur. So with transformative justice, we're talking about how do we intervene in instances of violence that both meet immediate needs but also transform the conditions that created that violence in the first place. So one, it's important to say that transformative justice and restorative justice are not monolithic. And I think at this point now, transformative justice especially has gotten large enough, our small kind of community or sector, whatever word you want to use, um, has gotten large enough that, that there really is a lot of different ways that people are using transformative justice. Not just in the kinds of violence that they're approaching, whether that's trying to use it for state violence versus sexual violence, or maybe, you know, bullying, or et cetera but also in how people are orienting to it. So some people lean more anarchist in it. Some people lean more towards, you know, there's lots of different ways that people are doing transformative justice. And I think that's also a very big asset that we have because communities are so different that necessarily so transformative justice or TJ is going to look different. And then I think with restorative justice, it's also not monolithic. So you have a a large range. There are many people doing restorative justice work that I know who I deeply respect who really see their work in restorative justice as being a pathway to something more aligned with transformative justice. What we have right now is a moment where restorative justice is being more kind of integrated into state systems, Mm -hmm. not necessarily on like a huge, large-scale level, but enough significant, more significantly than transformative justice. And transformative justice tends to operate outside of systems. It doesn't always have to but for the most part, we're talking about how do we build alternatives to our current system because we understand our current systems to be very violent. Whereas restorative justice, I feel like in this historical moment and for the past 10 years really, maybe seven or eight years, has begun to be woven into state systems. So you have it in schools and things like that. And so there is a sense, I think right now in this historical moment of really seeing, I see restorative justice and a lot of the work that's happening as a lot of harm reduction work. Because many of our folks are in the system whether we like it or not, and they don't have the luxury of being outside of the system. And so I see both of them, restorative justice and transformative justice, as being really complementary to each other in a lot of ways. That there are people who are doing work on the inside. A lot of them are lawyers. um, A lot of them are folks working with folks in prisons. Like I mentioned, kids in schools. And then also people doing work in transformative justice who are working outside of the system. So I see it as being very complementary to each other. I think there are some differences, though, in terms of, you know, a lot of the critiques have been the kind of co-optation from um, First Nations and Indigenous communities, especially on this continent, with things like the circle process and all of that. And I think it's important to remember, we talk about this in TJ a lot, that those practices were created within a certain set of conditions and within a certain context. So you had... The circle process for example that was created in cultures and communities where everybody shared the same language everybody shared the same set of maybe spiritual values and principles and practices everybody you know had relationship to each other and when you are taking those types of practices into our current conditions and context it doesn't always transfer as well and or they need to be changed um, because especially in a metropolitan area like the bay when violence is happening in our communities, oftentimes people are coming at it from all different cultures, backgrounds, different experiences. Sometimes we don't even share the same language, let alone the same values and, you know, principles. So I think that those are also some ways of the distinctions. Now I will say that, I think another important distinction though, is that restorative justice has actually had a lot more established people in, we call it time in, of just like, having 30-40 years doing restorative justice work and I'll just we'll just leave it specifically in the U.S. context. Whereas with transformative justice we don't have that necessarily. The sustainability of transformative justice has been really hard to keep up. The work itself has been hard to fund because oftentimes you're talking about people who are building alternatives to the system so outside Of the nonprofit system outside of systems where you might get paid for that work and that is very hard to sustain in a capitalist society where you need money as well as the work is is very grueling I mean it's hard work for sure to be dealing with trauma and to be trying to forge new ways of dealing with trauma that aren't that aren't replicating direct service models so you know that aren't replicating traditional practitioner models or traditional direct service models Um, so what I'm trying to say is I'm not sitting here saying that one is better than the other at all. That's not where I orient from. I I really feel like we need both approaches, and they are distinctly different approaches. I think, you know, a big critique of transformative justice, not just sustainability, but also that we, we don't have as many established models or processes as, for example, you know, with restorative justice, you have, for example, the circle process. Not everything is a circle process in restorative justice, but that has tended to be one of the Kind of more popular or widespread uh, models that people have used or processes that people have used whereas with transformative justice i feel like it tends to be in my experience it it has tended to be a lot more malleable and much more both its kind of greatest strength as well as its greatest (laughs) challenge is that it really can mold to whatever you need in your community Um, and i think that while that can be very hard to handle, it can also be a, a really beautiful opportunity. Um, I think living in the U.S. and living in the West, a Western context where people, you know, we've kind of been brainwashed. Our revolutionary imaginations have been brainwashed out of us. So we like it when somebody tells us what to do. We like to have a manual or, you know, a work a workbook that says, this is how you do it. And with transformative justice, we really don't have that. And I think that's a thing We have people who are definitely documenting their work when they are able to and sharing what they've learned. But for the most part, the people that I work with, at least in transformative justice, and the people that I really admire and respect um, and have mutual admiration respect for and with, are folks who are saying, look, we're all in the same boat. I'm happy to share what I've learned and we're still, we're still trying to figure this out. Nobody is an expert. And so I, I think that that has been a very different kind of orientation in terms of an approach in terms of transformative justice. Um, it's not to say that we don't have lots of different tools; we do, but it is to say that we don't have a one size fits all. And I'm not saying that about restorative justice either, but I am saying that I think that people gravitate more towards people in the in the U.S. I'll just speak for us uh, tend to gravitate more towards more structure, <laughs> and it's harder for us, Absolutely. I think, to flex our imaginations, to to think for ourselves, to just be frank.
0: Absolutely. There's a quote by Grace Lee Boggs who Mia mentions on her website, which is called Leaving Evidence, and we'll have a link for that on our website for the show. But uh, Grace Lee Boggs says that there are times when expanding our imaginations is what's required, and I, I love how you articulate how that relates to TJ, and certainly just that every, every bit of our life is entangled in a system. And so for Westerners, for U.S. citizens, to expect a universal solution is very emblematic of our dominant culture, I think, which of course is caught up in heteropatriarchy, in white supremacy. You are listening to We Rise on 89.3 FM KPFB. On today's show, I am in conversation with Mia Mingus of the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective. Let's return to the conversation. I also want to help listeners understand more and more deeply what transformative justice is and how it's something that we can all be using in our lives. So you just said, you know, Both restorative and transformative justice have different tools. And can you talk about the tools that you've used or a BATJC has used in transformative justice?
1: Yeah, one of the tools I can share is, (laughs) it's going to sound very science fiction, sci-fi, is our model of pods, which it feels even weird to call it a model, but people have been calling it a model (laughs) to us. But it it, it came about very organically. um, And I feel like the best work comes organically. Uh, the best work comes out of when you're doing the work and you're creating what you need with what you have. And pods felt very much like that. And so we were, for a long time, we had used the, we, and we still do, we using the terms of uh, like community, community accountability, community responses to violence. And what we found in doing our work was that oftentimes the word community was a very confusing word to people. People were people had very different understandings of what community is, what it could be. Some people defined community as just a general geographic location, like the Bay Area community. Some people defined it as huge groups of numbers of people based on one identity, like the feminist community. Some people, you know, defined it as just like an arbitrary set of values or relationships, like, oh, I, you know, I go to church with this person, so they're in my community or, oh, they're in community with me. And it was like, what does that mean? And so when we would ask people, things, when we would say things like community responses to violence or, or, you know, we're going to respond to violence with our community and asking people to organize their community, a lot of people didn't know what, it, what that meant and they were very overwhelmed by it. And I think it's really common for a lot of people, especially in this country, in the West, people who are living under capitalism, I think community is a hard thing because I think a lot of us don't have community, don't feel like we've ever experienced community at the same time that we actively crave it and long for it. And so I think that that when we use terms like community, and we use the term community all the time in our movement work especially, and I feel like we we still don't necessarily know what that I never know what people mean when they're saying I'm like which how are you using that word right now so because of that we realized that we needed a different word and we needed a word that specifically spoke to this specific type of relationship and set of values and criteria that you had with somebody that you would call on if you were experiencing violence harm or abuse and so we I think pods was, was suggested and it just stuck. So your pod people, I don't know how much more science fiction we can get, but your pod people are the people that you would call on if violence was happening to you, if you were surviving violence, or if you were doing violence or harm, or if you had witnessed violence or harm, or if somebody you love had been targeted or done violence. So we started with this idea of pods, that basically everybody may not have a community, but pretty much everybody had a pod in some way, shape, or form. And I should be specific, not necessarily everyone, but almost everybody had at least somebody or has at least somebody that they would call on if they were experiencing violence. And it may not be their closest people because oftentimes doing interpersonal, intimate, and sexual violence work, that's where the violence is coming from. So it may not be their closest, deepest relationship they have the most trust with. But what we did find was that people pod people, usually it was somebody that you did have some semblance of relationship and trust with. And then from there, everybody has their own criteria about pod people. Because what we noticed was that, so I feel like the traditional model of organizing or kind of community building that we have in social justice circles is that we have like an issue or an analysis, and then we bring people together around that. And we just say, now you're connected, build, you're in community with each other, build a relationship. And it's not... While that might work for some things, like fighting back against gentrification or genocide or poverty or things like that, when we're dealing with sexual violence, what we found was that there were different, obviously unique conditions as there are on every different type of violence that you're fighting back against. So the amount of trust, for example, in relationship that it took to build up with somebody, for somebody to feel like they could... Disclose that they were a survivor of child sexual abuse or that they did child sexual abuse when they were younger or even as an adult. It was a lot. So instead of saying like, okay, well, we'll wait the five years that, or six, seven years that it will take to build these kind of relationships. It was almost like if you think about a metal detector on the beach, we kind of were like where are where do people already have relationship and trust in their life and then let's build there you know like if you're swinging that metal detector over the sand like and then it's like ding 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 ding, then you're like this is where we need to build so one of the things we're trying to do with pods is build through relationship and trust and that's one of our principles in the batjc is that rather than trying to piece together superficial models of trust or superficial versions of relationship where really people don't actually know each other and they won't actually, they don't know each other nearly as well to show up for each other at like three in the morning or, you know, what have you. We said, look, people already had somebody that they would call on, even if it was just one person, even if it was just their coworker who they didn't really ha- know a ton, they already had somebody. So let's let's go there. If you feel comfortable enough to disclose with this person about surviving violence or calling on them to help you to survive violence, then let's build there and so we started to bring people together and ask them to identify their pod. Who are your pod people? So I think for all your listeners listening now, they can think of who are the people in your life that you would call on if you were experiencing violence and or harm or abuse. Um, whether that means you're surviving it or that you have survived it or that you are doing it or have done it. And we found that, that the people you would call on to take accountability for harm you've done oftentimes are different than the people you would call on to um, support you in terms of surviving violence, being targeted for violence, right? So the people that survivors would call on might be different than the folks who have caused harm might call on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that's, so, and that's also one, one thing that everybody, I feel like, can do now in their day-to-day lives is think about who are the people, and you can go to our website our BATJC website and you can download. We have a little worksheet and everything and a write-up that we wrote about this. If you need a template, you can make your own of just writing actual names. Who are the people in your life that you could call on and you know that they would show up for you or you know that you could have a nuanced conversation with them about accountability and they wouldn't collude or minimize what you've done, but they also wouldn't criminalize or demonize you. You know, they wouldn't say like, oh, I'm sure you didn't mean it, or what have you. But they also wouldn't say, like, I'm never going to be your friend again, <laughs> right? right? That they would could actually hold those complexities. Right. And that's a lot yeah. easier said than done. Let alone, who could you call on if you were trying to get out of an abusive relationship, for example, and you needed help? Oh, yeah. um, so your pod people are, really, are a really important key to transformative justice, because if we're talking about being able to respond to violence, abuse, and harm in our communities... Then we, in our quote unquote communities, then we need to get concrete. Who who are those people? What do we mean? How can we? Once we've actively identified them, how can we actively work to build and cultivate them? Right. And I just want to say really quickly, once once we started doing this, what we realized it was a very sobering process for a lot of people, even seasoned activists and organizers. We realized that most people had less people than they thought they did. And that's real. And I feel like that's a function, a result of capitalism because capitalism requires the breaking of relationships and the breaking of trust and being fearful of other people and you know, not having the time to invest in our relationships because we're working all the time. So it's very common. And I just want to say for people doing this, it's not a popularity contest. This is really a chance to get clear for yourself in your own life and say, how am I actively building an accountable life? How am I actively building a life that's grounded in care and support of each other, which really what else matters (laughs) in general? So that's one kind of general model. And I just want to say like as a caveat is that another thing that we found through doing this, well, two things. One is that not everybody has pot people and that's really real. And so like, for example, if we think about, you know, Immigrant women who are in abusive relationships where their abuser is actively isolating them, immigrant women and their families, they may not have pot people. Or they might be actively also being isolated because of lack of documentation or lack of language and the ways that xenophobia, racism, misogyny all plays out. Or, you know, I'm thinking about disabled folks who are being abused by their caretakers. They may be actively being isolated. They may not have any pot people. And so identifying our pods is not just something we can do for ourselves, but it's also a way to build a network of pods that could help anybody responding to violence. And then the last thing I'll say is that the other reason why we have been using this (laughs) model, quote unquote, is that it also helps us to get to where children already are. So we work on child sexual abuse and, you know, we always say like a six-year-old is not going to call us to spearhead a community accountability process, nor should that burden be placed on them. So identifying your pod people is also a way that helps us get to where children already are. And the more we can talk about and have conversations about how do we keep our children and our youth safe, the better we are and the more prepared we might be to be able to respond when our children and our youth are actually being harmed.
0: You are listening to We Rise on 89.3 FM KPFB, We're going to take a short music break and return to the conversation.
2: You who replants today despite unwelcoming soil so tomorrow can be worthy of the roots. Your children will grow up to be oak trees. lies until the grass finds enough spine to break concrete and taste rain for the first time your children will sing unconquered through hurricanes suffering so we never forget the familiarity of their essence your children will be unashamed of their reflection you who pushes against the jagged perimeters thrusting your weight until you can mold freedom regardless of the danger your children will dance bravely through sorrow goes barefoot and empty-handed despite the boots heavy and gun you've been given leaving destiny untouched your children will be prophets have fate pressed against their eyes
0: you just heard For the Courageous by Climbing Poetry I'm Kat Petru, your host on We Rise here on 89.3 KPFB On today's show, I am in conversation with Mia Mingus of the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective. Let's return to the conversation. Everything you said brings up so much, and one piece is just this is just so personal. So, the question that I have next is could you walk me through a scenario? And you can think of something that specifically happened or not. I want everything to be. I don't want anyone to be implicated. So even just something made up. But how does the process of transformative justice get initiated? I understand something might happen and you might identify your pod people, but how does it start? And then what happens? Like once I've identified my people, you know, it sounds like with healing, there's not a given time frame. It's not a linear process. So
1: yeah, so usually, so there's lots of different ways. So one (laughs) let me set the stage first and foremost i feel like when we talk about responses to violence or community responses to violence it can feel like responses to violence you know like this huge thing that just feels completely overwhelming and people automatically think of usually like the worst types of violence but what we talk about a lot in transformative justice work especially in the batjc is that oftentimes the way that violence starts out is that it's not, it doesn't start out full blown. It's very rarely that that happens. It usually starts out like very slowly and then it builds up, builds up, and then, then it starts to rise. Almost like if you think about it on a graph, then it starts to rise exponentially. So there's a both and in what we're talking about here. So I'm gonna get to your question, but I just wanna say that when I think about responses to violence, I think about them as being everything from a full blown intervention where, you know, It's gone off the rails and somebody's in the emergency room, somebody's been beaten up or, you know, somebody needs to get out of their house right away. Like, you know, full blown violence is usually what people rush to immediately. So but when I say responses to violence, I mean that all the way down to having conversations with your cousins about maybe even good touch, bad touch, having conversations with your mother around the dinner table or with your brother and sister as you're taking them to the bus stop. You know, like all of these small ways that are also responses to violence. So if you hear your friend, for example, using misogynist language and you begin to have conversations with them before they do misogynist violence, that's a response to violence. That's an intervention too. It may not be a full-blown intervention where the entire community is getting involved, but, and I actually would, would steer people away from the entire community getting involved, but we'll get to that. But that's still a response. So what I always want people to take away is that responses to violence can look all different types of ways. And that oftentimes, if we can begin to recognize the red flags and like the beginning signals of violence as it's escalating, if we can begin to learn how to respond to those, we can also work to prevent violence, which is part of what our work is too in the BATJC, is both and. How do we, obviously we know violence is not going to be ended in a campaign, it's generational, it's not going to be ended with one amazing grant or one amazing organization. And so how do we have generational responses and craft generational responses to violence? So that's that's one to just set the stage. So what you're asking in terms of what do these responses actually look like? I mean, honestly, I feel like a lot of what is amazing about TJ is that it's, on the one hand, it's like, so simple. And on the other hand, it's complex. (laughs) It's always I'm gathering that. Yeah, it's very organic. So the reason why we talk about pods is because we're really trying to, to build and cultivate just a general culture and general relationships where we could come to each other and just start brainstorming like, hey, I think my friend is dating somebody that I don't like the way that she talks to her, right? What should I do? Nothing violent has happened yet. Not that Verbal abuse is definitely violence, but like in terms of nobody's, you know, nobody's getting beat up yet, but I think it might escalate. So even things like that. And so pod work is a way to do that. And then when we sit down with people, that's essentially what we're doing is we're saying, okay, who are the players involved? Who can you call in for help? And it's never like we go into people's communities or families and like hold interventions. It's always, how do we support you to be able to do that? And in in doing that, hopefully transferring some of that skill set out. And that's what we try to do as much as possible because we don't want to replicate direct service models where everybody's always dependent on us. And I should say, oftentimes the people coming to us are people who have complicated relationships with their abusers or with their offenders as most of us do. Because most times, especially in intimate and sexual violence, it's not always black and white. Sometimes it is, but most of the time, especially when you get into the realm of abuse, which is different than violence. So abuse is different than like a one-time, you know, sexual assault, for example. Abuse usually takes place over an extended amount of times, sometimes even over a lifetime. It's consistent, happening over and over again. So there's a lot of... Again, signs building up to that that we can start to recognize, um, whether that's some people call, talk about it as grooming, some people talk about it as, you know, whatever people are putting into place so that they can abuse somebody. And so having said that, oftentimes people who are coming to us are people who have complicated relationships with the folks who have harmed them, like they oftentimes love them at the same time that they're devastated by them and are, you know, angry at them. And or they might still be dependent on them, you know, for financially, um, for lots of different reasons. But oftentimes what they all have in common is that they don't want the person who caused them harm to just be like thrown in jail. Or they don't want them to go through more harm. What we hear, what I hear most often from survivors is what they really want is accountability. And what oftentimes I hear from survivors is I don't even necessarily want an apology. I just want to make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Nine times out of ten, what people, what survivors really want is accountability. And, you know, I always say this, but questions of accountability are always bound up with questions of justice. And I feel like this is one of the reasons why transformative justice, I feel like, is so important to all of our political work right now. is because it really forces us on a micro level to really grapple with what is accountability what is justice whenever we talk about justice we're talking inevitably about accountability and if we don't if we don't even know what accountability is between you know three people four people two people then how are we going to demand accountability from the state or you know from from a stranger no less like if we can't even figure it out in our friendships and our families and in our intimate networks So I feel like a lot of the process is very organic. But another example might be that if it's between adults, if you have a survivor and then a person who caused harm, maybe it's around sexual violence, maybe there was a sexual assault that happened, you know, you might have a support team around the survivor side, you might have folks who are around the person who caused harm, supporting them to take accountability, and then you might have some people, either representatives from each of those sides, with some core people in the middle who are helping to coordinate things and helping communication to transfer back and forth, and or who are helping to organize and plan, for example, like um, a healing circle that the two of them might be in as a way to heal from what happened. Mm-hmm. That, I feel like that's a really common structure that gets
0: set up. Does it help? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, one refrain, not that you've said, but um, I'm reminded of a refrain that I learned from a teacher, "A feel Walking Tree. So some people might be familiar with her. She's often local and does tremendous healing work. And she says relationship before task, which speaks to some of what you were saying with regard to the way that our relationships are structured and dissolved by capitalist imperative to work so much, but also speaks to the possibility for healing um, and for transforming our relationships into accountable ones. And again, to tie this into systems right because i guess the way that i initially thought about tj is that it's an intervention or a disruption or a break away from our existing so-called justice system which it is but listening to it it just sounds so much it's so much it's so much about relationships and also in a way um an intervention into what i don't think i'm the only one who calls it like the self-care industrial complex or you know just the need for healers in so many ways and not to say that anyone who is a healer is But not to. We need healers. But I heard you say something really important, which is that when you meet with someone or someone comes to you, you're not. You don't want them to be dependent upon you. And there's also, you know, an importance in saying survivor rather than victim. There's something that happens when we encounter trauma, where we don't feel our power anymore. We don't feel our agency. And to heal requires some capacity to feel ourselves as as capable as as whole, which is written about a lot in, in a lot of beautiful work that addresses healing in collective and personal ways. That restoring that to the person who has been harmed is a critical piece of transformative justice, that's what I'm hearing. And then of of course, as it stands, uh, say the person doing harm is a person of color and they're criminalized, there's only going to be, I mean for many, for many people but especially especially if you're a person of color going into our our prison system you're going to be harmed again and again and again and again and so it's a chance for everyone's humanity to surface um, and for stronger relationships to be formed and it's sad that that's revolutionary but it is you are listening to we rise on 89.3 fm kpfb we're going to take a short music break and return to the conversation want it. This is We Rise on 89.3 FM KPFB, and that was Freedom by Taina Asili featuring Michael Reyes. You can find links to both the songs shared on today's show on our website, which is mixcloud.com backslash we rise radio. Let's return to the conversation. I'm just going to say a lot of stuff and we'll just see what happens. Yeah, Like throwing spaghetti at a wall. So notes that I wrote down as you were talking were the NPIC or Nonprofit Industrial Complex. Also, you named right off the bat that BATJC, the people who make up the collective, it's your life's work. So those are just two sort of talking points that I thought would be interesting. But the other questions that I am curious about that I think would be interesting to speak to are if you have experienced any aha moments, I actually really love that one. If you've experienced any aha moments so far in your work, and you sort of spoke to some of the beautiful pieces and some of the more challenging pieces of TJ, but um, if there's any particular learning edge that you're writing with the work or that you collectively are, Mm -hmm. and actually I'm just going to throw all the spaghetti out, and I think the last curiosity I have and would love to, to leave listeners with is, well, we didn't actually talk about explicitly like how long transformative justice has been around in some ways it sounds like one of those things where it's a word that describes something that's been happening since human beings have been alive it's just not one of those like career goal you know it's not like i'm gonna be a transformative it's like no that's you're just gonna be a human and that's not to diminish (laughs) at at all at all i just love how it's at its core it really challenges so much of our expectations in a capitalist and all the other is society. So that said, oh the aha moment. So there's the aha moment, there's the learning edge. Okay. And then like if there's anything sort of temporally that makes transformative justice all the more relevant or important for us right now. Okay. So um no this is And great. actually there's one more okay one more thing. One more piece of spaghetti to throw at the wall. I know B A T J C focuses on child sexual abuse and intimate violence but I, I'm wondering if and how TJ addresses other kinds of violence. Yeah. So a million questions. <laughs>
1: okay, so we'll start with the aha moment. Okay. Um, there have been many, many, many aha moments. So I'm trying to choose which one I should talk about. I'm, I mean, I think... So first and foremost, I think that transformative justice is, in a lot of ways, to me... I All of TJ feels like this both and. Uh, it's it's both that one's like makes total sense and then also feels very counterintuitive so I feel like a lot of the aha moments I've had have been around the counterintuitive pieces so I think that I think a lot of people because we've been influenced by capitalism and we've internalized so much of capitalism and the criminalization that capitalism depends on and all of these things and we've kind of internalized the prison culture inside of us that's beyond the actual prisons but that has now seeped into how we even treat each other in relationship and you know transformative justice is an abolitionist it like comes out of abolitionist work and abolition work um and i feel like is the other side of abolition work that it's not just about shutting down prisons or ending a prison culture. Like we also have to be building the alternatives that we're going to need because harm, generational harm and harm and abuse and violence, those things are not going to go away. And even if they did, we would still have to contend with generational trauma and trauma itself. And that's not going away anytime soon. So I think there's this both and transformative justice, but I think because we've internalized so much of a prison culture and a capitalist culture and a culture of disposability, frankly, that has everything to do with how we treat the earth too, (laughs) that I feel like we, the only ways that we understand accountability and even justice is through a punitive lens. We don't, and I say this all of us in the same boat, like we have a hard time imagining and really concretizing what and articulating what justice and accountability could look like outside of punishment, outside of more harm outside of really oppressive and traumatic things, and so I think people think of transformative justice as this like quote unquote like soft kind of justice. Like it's not, it's
0: not the real justice. What right? will you do with those hardened criminals? Exactly,
1: right? exactly. And what I've found and learned through my time in it is that it actually. In a way, it is softer, but I think that's harder, if that makes sense to listeners right now. Like, I think that there's a way that our current responses to violence, and I include our communal, current communal responses to violence, too, in that, like, vigilantism and cutting people off, you know, things like that, um, isolating people. I think there's a way that our current responses to violence, it's easy, you know, in a sense. Like, if you beat somebody up or you cut somebody out of your life, it's like, well that's done. I wash my hands of that and that's over, you know, versus really saying to somebody, yes, you've done this horrible thing and it has impacted so many people negatively. It is not okay that you have done that. We still care about you and we care about you enough to work with you so that that doesn't happen again. That is much harder because anybody who has ever tried to change their behavior knows how hard that is, whether it's, just as benign as trying to break a habit, like I'm gonna not bite my nails anymore, or I'm not gonna stay up till four in the morning watching Netflix every night. You know, whatever the benign examples are, we can't even do those things, right? I'm gonna drink more water, I'm gonna try to eat one green vegetable a day, you know, like whatever. I, I mean, I'm sure everybody is laughing because everybody has tried those things or things like that and failed miserably, right? Like the next day, you're, you're like, I haven't drank the wa- a glass of water yet and it's already 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So if we can take that and think about maybe the worst things we've ever done and how to shift oftentimes behaviors that have been very, ingra- very ingrained inside of us it's really hard. And, and in a lot of ways, I feel like that is actually the harder path and the path that is less slippery. If you think about a fish trying to slip away, and I feel like that is all of us. Part of accountability is resisting accountability. And we, when we go into accountability, we can either get thrown off and shocked by that, or we can know that and prepare for it, both for ourselves as well as other people. That part of accountability is resisting accountability. It's just a natural urge that we all have. And it makes sense, given our trauma and given the amount of shame that we're seeped in all the time, and that a lot of the accountability work that is true accountability, meaning that you understand what the harm that you caused, you're trying to, you, you've you made amends, you understand the impacts, and most importantly, that you're trying to change your behavior so it won't happen again. That is the most important part of accountability. And oftentimes we talk about accountability, we, we think of it as like a confessional type of accountability. Mm-hmm. Like I, you just confess what you've done, and then you're accountable. Right. And it's like, no, 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 that's... That's just the surface. So if we can think of ourselves, and again, with TJ work, oftentimes we like to you know, hold people who have done harm at an arm's length away and be like, those people are the bad people over there. We're the good people over here. But if we can understand that we all commit harm and have probably caused harm, whether we meant it or not, and all of us have survived harm in some way, shape, or form, then I feel like it helps us to grow the kind of capacities internally that we need to support accountability. So if we can all think, for example, of things that we, we are all, we've probably all done things we're ashamed of or things that we knew we shouldn't have done or things that you know maybe could have hurt somebody. Maybe we were lucky that they didn't, whether we chose to drive home drunk from a party one night or whatever, and we made it safely home, but we could have harmed somebody. So if we can think about those times in our lives and think about what we might've needed from them, what we would have needed from people in order to change that behavior, those have really been, I feel like, a lot of the aha moments for me of just like, right, like that is, uh, I don't know what other kind of word other than like soft, but it's also harder because if you're with people who won't let you turn away from that harm and won't let you turn away from whatever caused that harm, whether it was trauma, whether it was shame, guilt, whatever it was, that's 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times harder than just saying, okay, punch me in the face and then it will be over, right. you know? So I feel like there's that piece. And, and it's also, you know, you're not just healing individual trauma. You're healing oftentimes generational trauma too. And that accountability and healing go hand in hand. That, that oftentimes, <laughs> in order to change those behaviors, there's significant healing that has to happen. So that's that's some aha moments that I feel like I've really had, which is instead of trying to force people, I'm sure we've all had this experience when we were growing up, like, say you're sorry to your sister or whatever, you know, like, and you're like, I'm sorry, but that's not, <laughs> and I'm sure your sister doesn't feel like, oh, they really feel like they're sorry. So that's not what we're talking about. And again, that's the easy way, right? You just wash your hands of that and you're like, I said I was sorry, but that's not what we want. And that's harder to not just be able to wash your hands of it.
0: You are listening to We Rise on 89.3 FM KPFB. On today's show, I am in conversation with Mia Mingus of the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective. Let's return to the conversation.
1: And then I think some of the challenges of transformative justice that I've come up... I mean, sustainability is a constant challenge, whether it's sustaining myself in doing this work because it's not paid work. So how do I hustle and do paid work so that I can do this work that I love? Or whether it's the sustainability of like what we're really asking people to do is we're not just asking people to just like show up to the polls and vote for this candidate for one day out of the year or get people to sign up to vote for like a couple of months and then that's it. We're asking people to change their lives. <laughs> we're asking people to invest in their own healing. Um and I mean that with time, not necessarily even financially, but just like time and attention and work. So that you can
0: be a more accountable and responsible human being. And you don't get credit for that. And you don't get credit for that. And it doesn't always look like you're doing anything. No. Necessarily. You might be sitting in tears. And that's, that's the work. That is the work.
1: And transformation is hard. We romanticize this notion of transformation. <laughs> and we're like, we will transform. Yes. But anybody who has ever transformed knows that it is... I'm not allowed to curse. It is incredibly, gruelingly <laughs> hard. It is very hard (laughs) you know and part of transformation requires you know a death a letting go Mm -hmm. so that you can be i mean the butterfly analogy whatever but like you know so i feel like the challenge of transformative justice is you have to find people who are willing to walk into the fire together and not let go of hands and walk through it and come out the other side and that is incredibly hard So um, there's so many challenges to transformative justice. Uh, I
0: mean, can I just say it sounds well, this is something I was thinking about earlier. And I've known I've heard of this with some exposure to restorative justice, but that whoever is involved has to want to be there. I mean, even if you're someone who's a pod person, you have to agree. And I could imagine it could be hard if you're the person on the other side of the equation. Let's say if there are two people involved in the harm. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, maybe it's the one who's harmed that wants the accountability practice and the other person doesn't want anything to do with it. But it sounds like with this work, there has to be some kind of desire or some push. And I don't mean force, but like some calling to be, to do the work because it's not going to be easy or straightforward.
1: It has to be consensual. That's the, I mean, that's it's, the word. Especially when you're working around intimate sexual violence, yeah. there's no way that we're gonna non-consensually force somebody to be part of a process to end yeah <laughs> to end a culture of, of rape culture, for example. Well,
0: and that's interesting too, knowing that we're gonna wrap up shortly. I mean, that would be potentially a whole other hour or many hours of conversation. But what is it in the first place that gives someone that desire to step into that fire? Mm-hmm. Right, because not necessarily everyone's going to want to do that. So how do we create a culture where that's more desirable?
1: And that's part do you of pod- that? Yeah, that's yeah. part of pod work. That's mm. part of what pod work is is actually starting to have these conversations now instead of, you know, when violence has hit right. the top of, you know, and full being full blown, that is not the time when somebody is you know bloody and trying to get to the hospital. Like that is not a time to say, "Hey, there's this thing called transformative justice. Do you want to talk about it?" But if we can do it now and have conversations with our pod people and say, "Say, hey, Kat, you're somebody that I would call on to take accountability for violence if I ever was harmful to somebody, and like to actually get consent from that person, right? And right. then to begin to have those conversations around, like, what do you need?" And so a lot of the work that we do a lot of our prevention work is about preparing. How do we prepare better? And so we have like transformative justice studies, for example, where we ask people to invite their pod people so that again, that, you know, metal detector on the beach, right? Again, finding where the relationship and trust is and then moving, building in that. So saying, bring your pod people even, and most of the time, and this has been an amazing thing that I've noticed in this work that we found is that, most often and not, our pod people are not necessarily political activists and organizers, which makes total sense because our political culture is a workaholic culture, you know, where people oftentimes don't have time. And we usually don't treat each other very well when we're doing social justice work, which is really sad. Yeah. And so oftentimes it's people who have, for whatever reason, folks have been able to build more relationship and trust and dependability with. And so... So right, so in doing pod work, it's not only just like the action of yourself actively thinking about how who who would I call? How can I build my own support network? In I mean, in those terms. And then also having conversations with them. Maybe, maybe you your neighbor is somebody you would call, but you've actually never had a conversation with them about sexual violence. This is an opportunity to talk with them. Maybe you would call your uncle, but you've never talked with him about Prisons, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Right? Maybe you will call your aunt, but you've never come out to them as a queer person. So, mm-hmm. like, this is the time to do that work mm-hmm. so that we can begin to prepare for when violence happens.
0: Amazing. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? I forgot the last two questions you asked. <laughs> That's because I asked you so <laughs> many of okay. okay. um, I think... If there's a last question you'd like me to answer. Sure. Well, I want to make sure... We'll, we'll leave the, the website for listeners. I just want everyone to know that this... Is accessible, this isn't beyond your reach. If anything that we're talking about speaks to you, and the yeah, the last question, if you want,
1: yeah, know, oh, why TJ is important in the now, moment, right? yeah, is that okay?
0: Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question,
1: and I think TJ is super important in this moment. And one of the reasons why, <laughs> maybe a couple reasons why. So, one is like I said in the beginning, part of what transformative justice does is it forces us, it requires of us, it asks, invites us into. Really flexing our revolutionary imaginations and flexing our (laughs) imaginations to figure out what else is possible. And that I feel like even just transformative justice, in and of itself, is saying something else is possible beyond more trauma, more criminalization, more hurt, more isolation. Something else is possible. So I feel like that's one. And we need that so badly, especially now in this current political moment. And as we're working to not only resist against the systems that are trying to erase us, but build alternatives and the the world that we long for and ache for, really. And then the second piece is that I feel like because transformative justice is so relational and what I mentioned before in terms of the transformative justice, I feel like really allows us to grapple with in a concrete way that's not this ambiguous kind of lofty thinking of what Is justice and accountability? Like, I mean, I think for all of us, we can think about times that we've been harmed or violated or assaulted maybe even or abused. What would justice have looked like for us, to us? What would it have taken for us to feel like that was just, I feel like justice happened, you know? What what do we want from people who have hurt us or harmed us or wronged us for us to feel like they've taken accountability now? And then vice versa, when we've done harm or when we've done things that we're not proud of or we acted in ways that weren't aligned in our values, what would justice have looked like for us when we have harmed people, right? Or what would we have wanted to have given to the people that we've harmed in a way that it feels just, right? All of those questions we can ask when we've witnessed harm. And a lot of us probably grew up either witnessing direct harm or abuse in our homes or in our communities or even just on TV, right, and thinking of media and how ingrained violence is in inside of us Absolutely. as well, which is another reason why I think that transformative justice is so important right now because violence is everywhere. And we want to act like when people are violent or abusive that it's this
0: abnormal, you know, thing right. that's just, like, horrible. Well, we live in a culture where War has been happening yeah. nonstop, and it's condoned by our government. That's naturalized, but it doesn't need to be. Exactly. Exactly.
1: And we get taught all the time that violence
0: is an acceptable way to handle our problems, whether A boy, it's war. And it's always, and it's obvious, all the gender, gender. The identities, but, you know, like my, but my grandmother <laughs> will say that, like, oh, it's just natural for little boys to fight, and little girls would just sit there and play nicely. And I'm like, that's not true. Exactly. It's not true. It might happen, but it's because of socialization. And and no, but
1: and precisely because of that culture is why I feel like transformative justice is so important and restorative justice, that we have to figure out ways to not just keep dealing with the consequences of violence, but to actively prevent violence. And you know, the best prevention is a good response. Though Prevention and response are intimately tied together and mutually dependent on each other. We can't keep dividing it up and saying, oh, I'm just going to prevent teen pregnancy all the time, but I'm not actually going to help teen moms who have kids. You know, like, that's not... I mean, I feel like I lived through so much of that doing reproductive justice work, and I was like, we can't stop responding and just throw all of ourselves into prevention work, but we also can't only respond and never prevent violence because we'll burn ourselves out as we're doing. So I feel like transformative justice is really critical as long as we live in such violent conditions, and as long as we live in conditions where we have rates that are as high and epidemic as like one in three, one in four, one in six, that's huge, or every 19 seconds, every 14 seconds. These statistics are at epidemic rates. And, you know, I feel like community accountability is not necessarily for everyone, but a lot of the principles and practices of transformative justice, we can start incorporating into our lives now. And I feel like that's, to me, one of the best things that we can do to help build a foundation for successful social movements. Thank you so much,
0: Mia. Thank you. That brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you so much for tuning into We Rise here on 89.3 FM KPFB or tuning in online at mixcloud.com backslash we rise radio. You're always welcome to send any comments or suggestions to dance at gmail.com. Links to learn more about Transformative Justice, the BATJC, and MIA can all be found on our website, as well as links to the music played on today's show. Please join us next week for Feral Visions with Dr. Carolina Prado. She speaks with host Anjali Nathupadia about navigating the academic industrial complex, i.e. grad school or college, in as liberatory a way as possible. Blessings to you all during this time of solstice and we'll leave you with more from Freedom by Taina Asili again featuring Michael Reyes. What do we
2: want? Freedom